Well, good morning again. Uh, we're finishing up a series this morning called Made, uh, Discovering the Life That You're Made For. And we're journeying through this, this ancient book uh, in the Hebrew Scriptures of Judges uh, and studying... Uh, for some, it's a real uh, a guy you grew up hearing about in Sunday school, and for some, this is a really obscure story of a, of a man named Gideon. Uh, and so we've been asking, though, this, this really fundamental, important question. And what I realize is depending on where you're at in life, uh, you may not be asking this question as readily, because the older you get, the more you ask this question uh, and so, because what you realize is, is your time is depleting and that you don't have all the time in the world. And so you begin to ask bigger and better questions. And here's the question that this series is, is based on. Am I really living the life that I'm made to live? You, you know the one that you're currently living the, with the friends and the job and yeah, the work, and maybe it's the school, and uh, maybe it's uh, a relationship, or a marriage, or kids, but, but have you asked this question, and I know if you've been around for the last couple of weeks, you've asked it with us, are you really living the life you're made for, that you're designed for? And internally, we live with this tension uh, a lot of times, even if it's an unspoken tension of, of where we're at, of what we're doing, and then this, this picture of a preferred future of, of who we're made to be, and we may not even be able to put words uh, around that, but we just know that, that we're in this tension of not quite living who we're made to be and having this longing to live out this life. Uh, and, you know, you ask questions like this. Am, am I really supposed to, you know, work at this job and for the next 20 or 30 years? Is that the existence uh, that I have set forth before me? Am I, am I really made to, you know, whether it's change diapers and, you, you know, I have this great education, but now it's going over here. I don't even use, you know, what I got trained for because I have this job over here. Am I really living the life I'm made to live? I think incredibly important, powerful question to ask. And we said last week the prerequisite for living the life you're made for is rightly answering, correctly answering this. What is it that you're made for? I mean, I know, I know that's simplistic, but, but we all have an answer to that question. And, and you're answering it, or I'm answering it in the way we're living out our life. What is it really that I'm made to live? And only in correctly answering that question, we begin to step into the life that you're designed to live. Uh, and as followers of Jesus, as Christians, we believe that, that there is an answer, that the answer is, is that we are made by God, we are made for God, and, and as a result, our existence, our design, our makeup is to be made uh, to know the God of the universe and make him known. And when you begin to step into that reality, into a right relationship with the creator of the universe and begin to realize that my life was made for him and for the things of him, you begin to live out the life you're 
made for. And yet we live with this tension. And, and that's the same tension that the Israelites, and we've been talking about this for a couple of weeks, so if you've been around, you, yeah, this is uh, kind of on repeat, but uh, that's what they felt. You have this nation that was, that was designed or made by God to be a blessing to the world around them. You have this nation that he said that was a light to the Gentiles. You have this nation that was designed to be a theocracy where God was their king. They wouldn't have a king, but he was their king. And he would have laws that helped govern them and then judges who would mediate between them. That was the design that, that God was going to be king and show off, man, how good and great and awesome it is to follow the one true God. And yet, when we get to the book of Judges in the history of Israel, we find them, uh, we find them in a place where they constantly are on repeat of a cycle. They're constantly doing the same thing over again. And, and a lot of times we find this in our own life. You find that you're kind of doing this cycle. I bet uh, it's not totally unfamiliar. Where, where you finally go, you know what? I just want to do my own thing. And you kind of look around at everyone else who's doing it and you go, let's be like them. Maybe I'm made for what they're doing and I like what they're doing or how that looks over there. And so I'm going to go check that out. And God says, okay, okay. And allows the nation of Israel, as they looked around to the surrounding nations, become like them to experience the consequences of their choices. And in doing so, they feel the pain. They are oppressed. I mean, they're oppressed by this, you know, these, the Amorites and the Midianites, and they're just getting their butts kicked, honestly. You know, I mean, just literally, they're so scared that they're living at this point in the history of Israel in the mountains, in caves, because they've been kicked out of their own homes and towns because the Midianites, Amorites, and other uh, surrounding nations have so ravaged them. And so they finally go, God, help! And then God sends a judge to deliver and bring hope and restoration. And that's their cycle. That's the cycle of Israel, and if you want to study the book of Judges, that's how it, the whole book is this cycle. You kind of do good for a little bit, you look around, you want to be like everybody else, you experience the consequences of your choices, and then finally get to the point where it's so painfully, God help and God delivers. And we find this guy, Gideon, and God says, you know what, guess what? Even though you're hiding from the wrong tribe uh, and even though you feel like you're a wimpy nobody and you're hiding from the, the enemy, I have made you for more than what you're currently doing. And he finds Gideon, if you remember this all the way at the beginning, he finds Gideon threshing wheat in a wine press, which is basically impossible. You need to do it out in the open where there's wind, where the shaft can fly and the wheat falls and the kernels fall down to the ground. And he's doing it in a secluded area afraid of the enemy. And God shows up to him and speaks something so powerful into his life. He says, not only first, God is with you. And he says this, mighty warrior. You, even though you aren't living it out, you, even though you're so far from this, you, even though you're scared, you, even though you feel like you, you, you come from the wrong background, you don't have the right education, who could use me, you? And God looks at him and says, no, 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 you are the one I've chosen to deliver the people of Israel. You are a mighty warrior. This is what you're made 
before. Now, this morning, what I hope happens as we conclude, not the full story of Gideon, but, but this portion of it, uh, and is that it would be uh, a bit of a catalyst that you would hear from God real clearly what, what he longs to say to you, that to take the step to live the life you're made for. Because here's what I believe. Living the life you're made for isn't some distant thought way out here. Because I think some of us feel like, hey, this idea, uh, I could never be, that's never me. You don't know where I've been. You don't know my history. You don't know my past And here's what I want to encourage you with, or even challenge you with, is that you are, and I am, simply one decision away from living the life you're made to live. It is not something that's far outside your reach. And and to do it, you actually have to embrace, if we kind of buy into this whole God thing, this Jesus thing, a paradox. It's what I'm calling the paradox of living the life you're made for. Paradox is when you hold kind of opposites, you know, intention, right? Uh, and the Christian life, by the way, is, is, has all these paradoxal truths. Yeah, just think about Jesus, okay? You ready? Jesus said, the first shall be what? Last, thank you very much. And the last shall be first. It's this paradox, Living the life you're made for in our culture and bombarded with ideas that you know what, to really be the person you're made for, you got to go out and get yours. You got to go out and make it happen. You got to be the the captain of your industry and get after it. And unless you don't get yours, no one else is going to get it. And so you got to be first. And Jesus says, "Uh hang on, paradox. Living the life you're made for, because we can look at that and see plenty of people who've done that and are not living the life they're made for. He says, no, no, no. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. He says this. I mean, just think about this, how radical this is. Whoever tries to save his life will what? Anyone? Lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will what? Find it. Find it. He says, guess what? Living the life you're made for is embracing the paradox of life. See, we get bombarded by all of these things of, you know what, life's all about you. Life's all about whatever you're going to do one day. Life's about you being happy. And Jesus is saying, living the life you're made for is when you decide to enter the paradox of the kingdom of God. And you realize, first will be last, and the last will be first. I am going to live a life to serve. If I'm going to pursue my own life, what I know is I will lose it according to what Jesus said. But if I choose to give my life away, what he told me is I will find it. See, the decision, the decision for you to step into the life you're made for is embrace the paradox of the kingdom of God. By the way, that wasn't just a Jesus thing. That is a whole Bible thing. If you got your Bibles, open them up to Judges chapter 7, and we're going to look at Gideon. 
and unpack this reality, the paradox for living the life you're made for. Judges chapter 7, verse 1. Early in the morning, Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. Now, Herod is, uh, if you just want to know, literally in the Hebrew, it means trembling. And they would name springs, uh, or they would name their areas based on the overall, you know, climate, or maybe it was a mighty, uh, you know, um, event happened there. And so what Gideon's done since we left him is he has marshaled a bunch of people. He sent out messengers and tried to get all of the Israelites on board. There's 12 tribes, only four responded. And I mean, he feels like he's been pretty successful. He is able to get 32,000 men to stand up to the opposing forces that he's, got. he's going like, okay, the Midianites, the Amorites, you got to stand up to them. He's like, all right, we got 32,000 men men, and yet the overall climate is that they're at the spring of trembling and fear. And the camp of Midian was north of them near the valley, uh, uh, the hill of Moray. Uh, The Lord said to Gideon, he's got 32,000 men, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands, in order that Israel may not boast against me and in her own strength that... uh, that her own strength has saved her. Now, when Gideon gets this information, he's not feeling confident in the amount of men that he has. He's got 32,000 men, which was a great moral victory, and yet they're up in the hills still hiding out the Midianites are in the valley below, and, and later if you read the text, it'll say that it feels like they're, they can't even count the number of camels that they have. Later on in chapter 8, we find that there's at least 135,000 men in the valley below. So they got 32,000 men. They're facing an army of 135,000, and God's perspective on the situation was, guess what? You have too many Men. And isn't that just like God to be so illogical? I mean, get that. Because our perspective, the human perspective, is it's a four to one ratio. You know what? We might have a fighting chance if we got some great guys, and God's going, no, 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 no. Because the paradox is it isn't about you, it is about me and my glory. And when you surrender that, you get to watch me do what only I can do. And by the way, 32,000 is too many. And so, he says, announce to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So, so, this is so discouraging. I can imagine leading this group. So, 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remain. In one fell swoop, Gideon lost two-thirds of his fighting crew. And all he had to do was get up and say, hey, um, if you're afraid you can go. You know, I, I wonder if he, he gave the man up conversation either. Real men step forward. All the boys, you know, I don't know if he did that or not, but I mean, if, if, if it was me, I would have been tempted to just really try to, try to play the, you know, courage card. And these guys just didn't even care. They're just like, okay, hey, we get an out? 
<laughs> awesome. We're out. 22,000 men immediately are gone. He's left with 10,000 against 135,000. But, oh boy, the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water and I'll sift them there for you. And he says that word literally means that sift is, is a metallurgical term used for refining ore by uh, removing all the impurities. He says, I'm going to take uh, you and this group, and it's going to be exactly the way it's designed to be. And until you begin to allow me to do the process in you and around you, it, you have too many men. And so they get down to the, to the water, and as he's down at the water, some men got on their hands and knees and began to drink like a dog, and others uh, cupped their hands and brought it up to their mouths. And there's a lot of you know, discussion about what that meant and what that didn't mean, and honestly, we don't know. What we know is that God said, okay, I'm going to sift them down. And he was left from 10,000 to 3,000. Men. He went from 4 to 1 odds to 450 to 1 odds. And he says, now you're ready. Now here's what I love. Did you notice that verse 5? Uh, verse 5, you see it in verse 8 as well. So Gideon took the men down to the water. Then God tells him, hey, these guys have been, verse 8, so Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tent. See, we often, I'll put me in, oftentimes when God asks me to do something illogical or crazy or to step out and trust him to have that conversation with someone, instead of so I did, I generally argue with God instead of obey God. God, God, no, no, no. God, that is probably one of the worst ideas you've ever had. You're pretty good in the Old Testament. We've got to watch it, but maybe you've lost your game a bit. It, that's not how the world works. I can't do that at work. I can't have those conversations. What would people think? Now, here's what Gideon found out. And here's what he, through this journey, began to understand of stepping into the life he was made for. He understood this. You are only as powerful as your dependence on the strength of God. You're only as strong as your dependence is on God's strength. It's a paradox. Your strength is found in dependence when you go, okay, God, I got no other hope and no other choice. And what the New Testament, Paul would say, is his power is made perfect in weakness. Oftentimes, we do not experience the power of God because we will not be weak before God. And we keep trying to do it all ourselves instead of going, okay, God, I can't. And by the way, by the way, you know the moments when you experience Jesus is enough? When he's all that you have. See, you are most powerful and you are most strong when, when we are most dependent. The litmus test, by the way, for 
dependency is always your prayer life. See, because when you step into those moments of the unknown, it's the, oh my God, and you mean it. And if you don't show up, you don't know how it's going to work out. When's the last time, by the way? When's the last time that you took a radical step of faith, and if God didn't show up, it was over? Think about it. That's the life you're made for, by the way. To see God at work in and through you where you step into impossible situations and see him show up when you listen to the internal promptings of your soul and he says, go for it. You'll never experience the promises of God and the power of God if you're always on the sidelines sitting watching. Okay, you're not getting it. Okay. No, so I've been taking my kids swimming, and my daughter's doing swim lessons, and I've been teaching Miles how to swim. I'm, I'm pretty fearful of the water, if I'm honest, with my kids. It's one of my fears that I have. He's four and a half years old. Uh, and, and so as we're there, you know, I'm teaching him how to swim. Now, here's what I know to be true about swimming. You can study all you want to know about swimming online and in books, and you study it and go, man, this is good. Oh, so good, man. The, the, you know, the breaststroke and the, uh, this one. I don't know that one. And, you know, all the other different strokes that are there. The, what did you say? Oh, okay. You're a swimmer? Yeah, cool. Yeah. <laughs> so this hitting home. Um, you can read all about it. You can know more about it. It does not make you a swimmer. You are a swimmer when you jump in the pool and you experience the uncertainty of drowning and you begin to get these arms in motion. See, the life you're made for is to experience the strength and power of your mighty God presently, actively, not know about God. And we sit and we learn and go, oh yeah, that was good, oh, that's nice, oh, that's nice. And he's, no, 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 no. When you go, so God, amen. That crazy prompting. I love what uh, Mark Batterson says about that. There's only one way to find out if God will keep his promises. Obey the crazy prompting. What is it for you, by the way? Because there might be a relationship that you realize, man, I, I need to address. There might be something uh, about your future that you've been clinging on that you go, okay, I've had a prompting from God and I keep pushing it off. There might be a conversation that you need to have with your coworker or with your classmate or with your wife or your husband, with your kids. There might be a direction that your family needs to go in or, or maybe your, your house or, or a conviction that you need to stand strong on and you're going, you keep pushing it off and you keep arguing and you'll never experience and you won't swim. You might be smarter, but you'll never glide through the water. Hey, that rhymes. The paradox. For living the life you're made for, you're only as powerful as you're dependent on God's strength. Now, now here's what I love about this. 
is God isn't the God that as you step out and trust him, that he just kind of gives you the slap on the rear, attaboy, go get him, and then he just sends you off. This is the God who reassures and the God who encourages. Notice what happens to Gideon. Now the, uh, the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, so he woke him up in the middle of the night. Maybe some of us have been woken up and we just roll back over. Maybe God's trying to get a hold of your attention and encourage you. Get up, go down to the camp because I'm going to give it into your hands. Promise of God. If you're afraid, if 300 against 135,000, if. See, you know what I love though? God doesn't, God doesn't beat Gideon up over the head. I can't believe you're afraid, you weenie. I told you, you don't trust me. He, he looks at him with full compassion. Think about this. Because I know some of you, even just that conversation we had, there's some tension inside. And you went like, if I really, I know God's shown me exactly what to do, but I haven't done it for years because I'm afraid. And then you feel like God's down on you. And he's going, no, no, if you're afraid, if you're afraid, I want to show up and reassure you of my presence with you. Now, notice what he says. If you're afraid to attack them, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they're saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged. Literally, the word uh, means to have your hands strengthened for the task at hand. It says it's okay to be afraid. It's just not okay to allow your fear to dictate your future. It's okay to be afraid. It's just not okay to allow yourself to be captive by your fear. Fear. So, by the way, I, in the midst, as you step out and trust me, I'm going to strengthen your hands. And so he sneaks down to the camp, and he's overhearing these two guards on the outskirts of camp talking. They have this bizarre dream. And in the ancient world, they, like, put a lot of, you know, uh, precedent in dreams and thought every dream could be uh, totally interpreted. And so the, he's down there, and these guys have this weird dream that this barley loaf, like, comes rolling through their camp and knocks over a tent. Now, a barley loaf is the, the food of the very poor uh, and Israelites. This was their staple food item. And then the guys interpret, these two uh, Midianite guys, they're having this conversation and interpret. And, and just at that time, Gideon gets to overhear this. And, and what he overhears is he hears them say, this could only mean that that's the sword of Gideon and will be defeated. <laughs> One, I, I don't know how you got to that conclusion with the, uh, the barley and tin. I just would have went, man, I'm hungry. I woke up that night, and I was hungry, and I had some hankering for barley, and so hungry, it knocked me over in my tent. But that's where his conclusion came from. And what I love, what I love, Gideon. When Gideon heard this, verse 15, the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped God. Because you know what he found? He found out this truth. That the things that stand opposed to us aren't nearly as strong as they appear. Oftentimes, it's the fear itself that is more uh, that we're more afraid of than the thing we're actually afraid of. That the things opposed to us aren't nearly as strong as they appear. All is not lost, even though he only has three. Hundred men. Um, this weekend, I had this 
experience. We went to a wedding, part of a wedding in Carmel, and got to be there. And so Friday morning, we're staying in Carmel, which is amazing. It's paid for. I'm like, yeah, you know, uh, hanging out with my wife. People are taking care of our kids. Awesome. Friday morning, we get up uh, to go to coffee. And so we go to one coffee shop, and it was... um, it was okay. We, we're kind of coffee snobs, if we're honest. You know, we want a good cup of coffee. And we had a cup of coffee there, but I, I was going to stay and work for a while, and Jenny was going to go hang out with some of our Santa Cruz friends, and she was excited to go do that and go uh, shopping. Uh, and so uh, I'm like, I don't really want to stay here and study. So we go to another coffee shop, and that one just had a weird vibe. And so then we go to another coffee shop, and we're like, oh, that's okay. And, and so finally, our fourth coffee shop, we land. And we had four, four coffee shops before 8 a.m., you know. Uh, and so we land on this one coffee shop, and all the chairs up in this one area, it's a small coffee shop we're taking, and there's one big table uh, that I sat at, and I kind of put all my stuff there, but I, I kind of felt bad because I was taking, like, nine seats, you know, with me and my computer and all my books out and those sort of things. And so I was trying to be cognizant of people around me, and I just noticed this one. I thought there were a couple that walked in, and they were going to walk out because there was no room, because obviously I'm taking the nine-seat table all for myself, and so I I said, hey, you guys can sit at my table. It's not a big deal, and so they come and sit at my table, and then quickly realized they weren't a couple. This guy was uh, a financial planner, and he actually kind of seemed like a, uh, a snaky guy, you know, not real cool, um, and I tried to put on my headphones so I wasn't over hearing their whole conversation, but uh, he goes to get them a cup of coffee, and she looks at me and says, oh, is that a Bible? And I said, yeah, it's a Bible. Are you, are you a believer? I said, yes, I am. How about you? And she says, yes, I, um, you know, I have just a kind of long story about where she's at and she, with, with God, and we didn't quite get into it all, and he came back with the coffees, and they're talking about how well he's doing with her finances, and he did not do a good job, by the way. And he was, he was just a sharky guy. Um, and so I got my headphones on and trying to focus and do all this kind of stuff, and they finished their conversation. She's kind of sitting there, and you can tell she's kind of bummed. And I just felt like God's saying, you, you need to talk to her. I'm like, God, I got, I, got, I got a lot to do for you, okay? I can't talk to her. Um, and honestly, I'm like, I don't really want to talk to somebody right now. And I go and get a refill, and then I just, I just go, hey, so how are you doing? And we start to talk, and she's like, well, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a pastor. Uh, and, you know, I, I work in San Jose. I grew up in Santa Cruz. I don't know how Santa Cruz come up. And she asked me this, no lie. Very next, I mean, right at the beginning of the conversation, she asked me this. So when you were in Santa Cruz, did you happen to go to Chip Ingram's church? <laughs> I said, well, uh, as a matter of fact, that's my dad. Um, she's like, and all of a sudden, that opened up the doorway to her soul, and she just began to share her life. She's like, I've listened to your dad for years, and he's gotten me through some of the hardest things. Uh, we lived in this one house that the only radio station that came on was a Christian radio station, and he came on every morning at 7 a.m., and I listened to him, and she's in the middle of a messy, hard divorce where her husband's been hooked on porn the whole time, and just feels like her life has been ripped apart. At one point at the end of our conversation, she even talked about how she's been contemplating suicide. And as this conversation's happening, 
I couldn't help it. It's just over and over, these words came to my mind of, of what I wanted to say to her. Is like I just felt like God was saying, all is not lost. There's still hope. And, and then I just wanted to point out to her, I said, you got to realize God went out of his way to share that with you. God went out of his way because he planned a wedding far in advance that I would be in Carmel, which I've only been there once. God planned it so that I went to four different coffee shops. God planned it that every other seat was full, so I'd sit at the big table, and then you would sit here so that Chip Ingram's son would sit across the table from you. Now, when I said, that's my dad, her response was like, I, and sometimes I get this a little funky. It's like, I am so honored. <laughs> like, as if I was royalty, and you guys know it's not true, you know. But she's like, I cannot believe this. I, can I touch you? And like, like the Pope. I'm like, yes, you may, you know. Um, God went out of his way to strengthen your hands in the midst of the most hurting and difficult moments of life. And it's down to nuanced parts of our conversation. I mean, it's so cool because part of some of the stuff she's talking about, there's this cool sermon uh, by a guy named Britt Merritt called When the Sparrow Falls. If you're going through a hard time, great, great sermon to listen to. And so I was like, oh, yeah, he started this church called Reality. And there's multiple ones now, like Reality San Francisco, Reality A. And her eyes light up. She goes, my son goes to Reality LA. I mean, it's just like thing after thing. And as she left, I mean, I just felt so, I couldn't help it. I just bawled, just thinking, God, I got to be a part of that. Listen to a stinking internal prompting just to say hi that I could have passed. And who knows, this woman's been contemplating suicide, and God put me there for such a time as this that He wanted to strengthen her hands to continue on. And you have the God who reassures, the God who encourages, the God who comes alongside, who wants to strengthen your hands for the task. At had. And I love what Tim Keller writes on this. He's got a little uh, commentary. And he says this, we can find that we lack assurance of God's presence with us and power for us because we never take a risk to do something bold in obedience to him. We never step out in faith and find him there. See, the paradox for living the life you're made for is you stop trusting in your own ability and you trust the God who is able. And you, when he says, hey, I want you to take 32,000, go to 300. I want you to sneak down to the camp. <laughs> okay, that's a good idea, God. Because I want to strengthen your hands there. I have put you at the opportune time that you would hear exactly what you need to hear. And then I love how this uh, concludes. It says that he returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Then dividing them into 300 men into three companies and placed trumpets and empty jars in their hands, all of them with torches inside. 
No spear, no sword. 300, what are you going to do? 450 to 1, we got no chance. And Gideon thinks outside the box. By the way, what I love about his strategy is it doesn't say God told him this amazing strategy. He used his intellect and his God-given ability as he trusted God. And you see those marrying together in this situation. And Gideon comes up with a brilliant plan. It it is psychological warfare at its best. And what he does is he, he has every guy, and you got to study this. It's such a cool passage. This is why you should read the Bible, by the way. It's like cool stuff like this. And he gives everyone a torch and then a jar, and they're covering it so that uh, they can't be seen as they climb up, and they're, they're going to surround the army, and they got trumpets, and they're going to blow these trumpets at the midnight watch. And there's three watches that they had in that day the armies would have, uh, one from 8 p.m. to midnight, then midnight to 4, and then four to eight. And a third of the army would be on the surrounding watch. And so that's around like 40,000 people, right? 135,000, 45,000 people, I think it is. Uh, I'm not a mathematician. It's tough math, but around 40,000 people, 35,000 people, 40,000 people are on watch. And so right as the changing of the guard, so you got all these guys going out and then these guys walking through camp fully armed, and at that moment, Gideon breaks the light torch and blows the trumpet. Now, now, the only people who had trumpets in the army were the leaders, were the captains, were, were the admirals. Uh, I can't say that word, but you know what I meant. Were the admirables. God, I tried it again. Uh, were the captains. Uh, <laughs> And so, to have 300 trumpets blasting out orders, when the Midianites woke up, it, it felt like a massive invading army. To, and they got men in pitch black dark walking through their camp with sword and with spear, and they began to attack each other because it was dark. They couldn't tell who was who. And God saved the people of Israel And Gideon didn't lift a sword. Now, here's just kind of the closing thought I want to leave you with. God delights to do extraordinary things through ordinary people whose just hearts are his. You know what that means? That means you say, So, God, whatever you say, I'll do. God delights. It brings him great joy to do extraordinary things beyond what you could ever imagine. If you'll follow him into the places where you go, that seems a little crazy and a little illogical, and he will strengthen your hands along the way. He delights to do extraordinary things through ordinary things. Not super special, not have it all together, not hyper-religious. Ordinary people like you and me, he has placed you on this planet for that. This is what you're made for. So, as we close, and as we close this series, I just want to ask this question, that you would wrestle with this question. What is it that God is asking you to do? 
What is the step? What is the thing that you know in your heart, and it might be something around your future, and you're like, I can't do that, or around your job. It might be a relationship that you know you need to address, or a conversation. Maybe it's, you know what, there's a coworker that, that God's put on my heart, and I just need to talk to him. I need to step out and risk a relationship. What is it? And would you begin to just go, God, Whatever you show me, I'll do. He'll show you. There's one decision. You're one decision away from living the life you're made for. It's stepping from self-dependence to God-dependence and going, God, whatever you show me, I'll do. And when you do that, it doesn't mean it's not scary doesn't mean it's not hard, but it means you stepping in and you get to see God show up in ways that you could never. And you will tell stories to your friends about your great God. And you'll tell stories to your neighbors about how God is able. And it's not stories in the Bible. You are not a head knowledge only. You have experienced the God who is able. Let's pray. God, I, I just asked right now, um, there's some real clear things for uh, each person in here that are next steps. Would you give them the wisdom to know what to do and then the courage to do it? God, may we be a community that, that steps out courageously to trust you and find that you are trustworthy. Jesus' name. Amen.